Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing Chapter 24 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path that Leads to Nibbana. In this chapter, I share with you about the misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings. Because now that you've been reading the book for a period of time, or that you've been attending this group learning program for a period of time, it's time for you to start understanding some of the other things that you're going to see in the Buddhist community around the Buddhist teachings. Because not everyone understands and learns the teachings in the same way that you have. Not everyone has access to the Pali Canon in English or even the Pali Canon at all. Not everyone fully is on the path, even though they might be considering themselves Buddhist and considering themselves a Buddhist practitioner, they may not have actually even have access to things like the Three Universal Truths or the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or even really understand the Five Precepts or the Natural Law of Gamma or all the other things that have been shared in this book and in this program. So in different communities and different venues around the world that are practicing Buddhist teachings, you're going to see a whole slew of different ways of approaching and understanding the teachings. And this can all be chalked up to impermanence because since Gautama Buddha's death over 2,500 years ago, there's been 2,500 years worth of impermanence of one person to another to another one text to another to another, one talk to another to another to another. And in a lot of ways, we've gotten further and further and further away from Gautama Buddha's teachings to the point where now his teachings are almost invisible in the world. Sure, we have temples, we have monks, we have books, we have people that talk about Buddhist teachings. But as the Buddha predicted, now 2,500 years later, it's almost as if the Buddhist practitioners and ordained practitioners and teachers themselves are actually arguing and fighting and bickering over what is the true teachings and what aren't the true teachings. Well, one of the ways that you know what are the true teachings is through learning the teachings and practicing them. If whatever you're learning can't be independently proven, then it's not the true teachings of the Buddha because everything that Gautama Buddha taught can be independently confirmed. For example, the first teaching of impermanence, the first universal truth. When you understand impermanence and this constant change and how the Buddha talked about impermanence, 
you can take that teaching and you can go in the world and you can look and you can investigate and you can see for yourself whether or not it's true. And when he talked about discontentedness and he talked about the three feelings of the mind, you can look at those teachings and you can reflect on your own mind and see what you've been experiencing and see if that explains the mind. You can take things like the Four Noble Truths and you can investigate this through your own experiences and see if it is in fact true. You can take the Eightfold Path and look at how it's laid out and reflect on situations that have gone good for you in the past, situations that have gone not so well, and you can see where things haven't gone well, you weren't practicing these teachings. And in this way, slowly but surely, you can gain wisdom in Gautama Buddha's teachings of what he actually taught and what leads to awakening of the mind and acquiring this wisdom. Well, as you do that, you're going to potentially encounter things that aren't Gautama Buddha's teachings. And one of the ways that you can identify these things is that they're typically going to be based on belief, that you need to believe something in order for it to be proper or correct. Or once you understand the true teachings of the Buddha that lead to awakening of the mind and lead to wisdom, you'll see that the things that are shared with you are potentially in direct conflict with those things. So once you learn and practice the teachings and your mind starts to gradually awaken where it becomes unshakable and you no longer are experiencing discontentedness or your discontentedness has shrunk significantly, then you're going to know what the true path to enlightenment is because you're practicing that path and you're seeing that your discontentedness is shrinking more and more and more i.e. your mind is becoming more and more enlightened. And through doing that, when you go into different venues or different communities or you read different books or you go into various Facebook groups, you'll be able to see very clearly what are Gautama Buddha's teachings and what aren't Gautama Buddha's teachings. So now that you've studied this book, you've listen to the podcast, you've been in the group learning program or what have you, now it's a very good time to start talking about the misunderstandings. And this can actually further help you to understand what the true teachings are and kind of help to develop that unshakable mind. And one of the reasons why the mind becomes so unshakable is because once you see the truth yourself, once you see it independently verified and you acquire this wisdom, there's no way that anybody can shake you off of that because you're not believing it. You actually have seen it with your own eyes. So once you understand, for example, the Four Noble Truths and you understand that you are indeed causing all of the discontentedness in the mind and you see that very clearly, there's no one that can ever shake you off of that because you see it for yourself. No one told you to believe it. You're not believing it. You investigated it. You acquired the wisdom and you see true reality yourself. So that's why this mind becomes unshakable as you gain more and more wisdom because you have seen the truth through learning the teachings, reflecting on them, practicing them in daily life and seeing that the mind in your life becomes more and more peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy as the mind gradually awakens to enlightenment. So we're going to move into this chapter and discuss the various aspects that I share about the misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings. 
The first thing to understand is that there isn't just one Buddhism. There isn't just one type of Buddhism. Because of impermanence and because of all the various teachers and all the various books and all the various things that have been shared over the years, we actually have three major branches or three major traditions or three major schools of Buddhist teachings. And then there's various offshoots of these. The first one is called Theravada Buddhism. This type of Buddhism is primarily hosted in South and Southeast Asia. So India, Sri Lanka, Burma, or now we call it Miramar, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, South Vietnam. Places like this are where Theravada Buddhism has pretty much really thrived since its inception during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha. We call it Theravada Buddhism because Theravada means teachings of the elders. It's considered to be the most pure, the most, the closest to the teachings that the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime. But not everybody agrees with that. But that's what we consider it because we source all the teachings back to the Pali Canon or the Pali Text, which is the most complete and largest collection of Buddhist teachings from the Buddha's lifetime. Some people refer to Theravada Buddhism in the old way. There used to be a way of referring to this school or this tradition or this branch of Buddhism called Hinayana. And this is really seen as a derogatory term. And you don't hear too many people referring to it that way these days. And I think the people who still use that word probably don't realize it's kind of meant in a derogatory way. So the way that the vast majority of the world refers to this school of Buddhism is Theravada Buddhism or this tradition. And then there's Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism comes much later after Theravada Buddhism and spreads primarily to East Asia, like China, essentially. And this particular type of Buddhism starts to look at the Buddhist teachings in a very different way than Theravada Buddhism, or they also call this early Buddhism. They call Theravada Buddhism early Buddhism because Mahayana Buddhism starts to kind of morph and change and adjust certain things. And some people refer to this as the greater vehicle. And then there's what's called Vajrayana Buddhism. This is primarily hosted in Tibet, Bhutan, Mongolia, and the Russian Republic of Kalmykia. This is the type of Buddhism that you see the Dalai Lama practice. And all of these different traditions, the monks and the Bikinis or the female ordained practitioners, they all wear different clothing and different uh, style of clothing in order to distinguish their particular tradition and perhaps a certain sect within their particular tradition. So the Dalai Lama is just one monk inside of the Vajrayana tradition. He's a very well-known monk. He's a very popular monk, but he is essentially just one monk inside the Vajrayana tradition. And in this particular tradition, 
from my perspective, it gets really far away from what the Buddha was teaching because here in this particular branch of Buddhism, you start seeing a lot of mystical things, magical things. You see a lot of ceremonies, rites, rituals, and things like this, almost worshiping the Buddha, which we're going to go into as we talk today. And some people refer to this as the lightning fast vehicle. And the reason why they're using these terms, lesser vehicle, greater vehicle, lightning fast vehicle, is because the vehicle is meant to represent the individual and how quickly they can actually attain enlightenment. So as the teachings get further and further away from what the Buddha was teaching, the claim is that these other traditions of Buddhism are better than what the Buddha was teaching and they actually can help you attain enlightenment more quickly and more rapidly. But there's no evidence of this at all and it's just the way that people have kind of referred to it and anybody who's interested in attaining enlightenment really quick and really fast they're kind of losing the perspective of what enlightenment is all about it's a gradual process of developing a life practice learning patience is a big part of the path to enlightenment so if somebody's in a real quick hurry to get to enlightenment then they're kind of losing the perspective of what enlightenment is all about in training the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. This map that I'm showing here, it's not meant to be a highly accurate map, but I kind of put it up there because it's interesting and it's colorful and gives you something to kind of look at as we're talking about the spread of Buddhist teachings throughout the world. The real focal point there is essentially the area of the world where Gautama Buddha originated and his life started. And then from there, Buddhism kind of spreads southward and it spreads down through India into Sri Lanka. And then what we think happened is from Sri Lanka, it actually jumped over to Thailand. This map doesn't show that jump, but there you see down into Southeast Asia, the spread of Theravada Buddhism. And this is that core tradition that is considered to be the most complete, most accurate to the time of the death of the Buddha. And then the Mahayana Buddhism spreads out east into East Asia, into China. And then we get the Vajrayana Buddhism, which spreads to these other regions of the world like Tibet and Bhutan, Mongolia, and the Russian Republic of Kalmykia. But as we get further and further away from the death of the Buddha, the teachings start to change and morph and take on a whole new life. And my perspective on this is that as you start to experience awakening through the teachings of the Buddha, you don't just flip a switch on and off. As the mind starts to awaken, you start to get this awareness, you start to get this concentration, you start to get clarity of mind. But one of the last things to actually be eliminated from the mind is the ego, that pride or arrogance or measuring and comparing, seeing yourself above or below other people. So my thought is, is that as people were kind of gradually learning the Buddhist teachings and their mind was starting to get some level of awakening and awareness, but the ego was still there, they felt, aha, I know something more than what the Buddha taught. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to take these 30 people or these 50 people and I'm going to start my own Buddhism because I know more than what the Buddha knew. But the interesting thing is, is that they got to that level of awareness of mind or that level of awakening of mind 
through the Buddhist teachings, and then it's almost like the ego, the craving, the desire, the attachment kicks in, that ignorance kicks in and says, aha, I'm going to do something better than this perfectly enlightened Buddha. And that's really dangerous in my perspective. A Buddha awakens on their own through their own efforts. And the Buddha would have known the teachings very clearly and very directly through his own wisdom and his own direct knowledge. And once someone starts attempting to change his teachings, now they're essentially, again, going through craving, going through ego, and attempting to modify something that someone who was the originator, founder, discoverer, and declarer of this path has laid out for all of us. And once things start to change, it makes the path actually more gray and more fuzzy and more difficult for other people to travel. And the Buddha talked about this and he talked about people who would end up doing this over the course of his life and after he dies. And he warned us in a very polite and kind way and said that anytime we discover or get ear or learn something from somebody that conflicts with his teachings, we should ignore it and consider that this person has misunderstood the teachings. And he also talked about the way to ensure that you're learning his teachings is to practice the teachings. And through practice, when you see the condition of the mind gradually improve, then you will know that you are learning the real teachings because the mind will gradually improve where this anger will go down to frustration, irritation, annoyance, to eventually you won't experience any discontentedness at all. But if you're not experiencing that with what you've learned in the past, then you know that the teachings that you're learning aren't the true teachings or maybe you've misunderstood them and you need to seek more guidance from the person who has been sharing them with you. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on this first part. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into actually talking about misunderstandings within the Theravada tradition because there's lots of misunderstandings in my view and in my opinion in the Mahayana and Vajrayana tradition. But rather than to go through all of that and confuse people, what I spent this chapter doing and what I would spend this talk talking about is the misunderstandings within the Theravada tradition because I would think that now that you've had this exposure to Theravada Buddhism that you'll probably traverse in the various communities of Theravada teachings and you're going to see things even within that tradition that has gotten away from the Buddhist teachings. So that's why I spent this chapter and I'll spend this talk discussing that. So any questions from Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put into the comment section and Max will be sure they get asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom and you'd like to raise your hand electronically, you can do that and ask your question directly. We have a question from Nick. Did these other schools of thought modify the teachings or do you think it was more of their interpretations and how to explain it to their people for things to click in their mind? I don't think anybody, you know, kind of consciously sat down and said, okay, we're going to drastically change the teachings. These kind of things, in my view, happen gradually over multiple generations, you know, one conversation to another, to another, to another. It's inevitable, right? It's it's a universal truth that impermanence is going to happen. Even this language, we're speaking English, it's not the same language that it was 
you know, 300 years ago or even 30 years ago or even three years ago. This language is always constantly changing. So pretty much from the time of the death of the Buddha, different people kind of went off in their own directions and kind of formed their own schools because the Buddha didn't leave any one particular person kind of in charge of, all right, you're going to be my successor. He just kind of left things be. And because of this, different people and different groups and different, you know, 100 monks here and, you know, 30 monks here, they kind of went off right pretty much from the right at the time of his death and started to do their own thing. And then those things splintered more and more and more and more. And this gradually just occurred over time. And then at some point, there were people who sat down and said, okay, we're going to make what we consider to be a new take on what the Buddha was teaching. And you'll see different canons, so to speak. You know, with Theravada Buddhism, we refer to the Pali canon as being the original source of the Buddha's teachings. In the Mahayana tradition, they have their own canon, which involves part of the Pali canon, or most of it, I think, but there's also some other things as well. And then I'm not even sure what they use in the Vajrayana tradition, but these things start to take on a lot of the local culture and local customs of the various regions that Buddhism travels into, and it just kind of all gets merged together and it gets named a new thing. And uh, it just happens gradually over multiple generations. Do you think, David, these other traditions are also potentially useful means for awakening? I don't know because I haven't learned or practiced any of these other traditions. What I see is I see Theravada practitioners and monks, and I know people that are enlightened in this tradition. And you can very clearly see these are the Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon. These people are teaching that. They're practicing that, and you can see the results in the condition of their mind. I've even had experiences where I've talked to people who said that over the last 17 years of their life, they've talked to you know hundreds of teachers within the Theravada tradition, and they asked the teacher the same exact question, and all of these teachers essentially gave the same exact answer, meaning that even though all these teachers haven't met each other, they're coming from a similar source. And I see Theravada Buddhist practitioners experiencing enlightenment. What I see in the Mahayana tradition is those folks will typically learn and study to a certain degree, but then they will eventually reach out to the Theravada tradition because there are certain things that they feel like they're missing in their tradition. So they don't have a kind of a complete set of teachings. So it's common to see Mahayana monks and practitioners of the Mahayana tradition come into Theravada tradition or school and try to supplement what it is that they feel like they're missing in their tradition. And same thing with the Vajrayana tradition. So I can't speak to whether they're actually producing enlightened beings or not, because I really don't know very many people in the Mahayana tradition or Vajrayana tradition. I haven't really looked at it. As far as I understand, I think that the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are part of these traditions, but everybody's take and everybody's interpretation of what the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is, is very different, not just from tradition to tradition, but within each tradition, every temple, every teacher will have a different perspective on what the Buddha was actually teaching. We have a question from Judith. 
Are these newer traditions still good places to go in order to be among a sangha? You'll have to decide that for yourself because every community is different. You know, it really depends on what you're interested in learning and what you're interested in being exposed to. And you can try. I've been around Mahayana temples. I've actually never even been in one. I've been around Vajrayana temples, but I've never actually been in one. I just have never needed to in this life to get exposure to any of those things. I just kind of have a cursory understanding of some of these things from talking to people here and there. But what you hear from one person to another is going to be very different. Some of the temples here in Thailand, even though it's a Theravada temple, they will incorporate certain things from the Mahayana tradition or the Vajrayana tradition. And I can see very clearly that this isn't of the Theravada tradition. But I've never interacted with a Mahayana community or a Vajrayana community to know if that would be beneficial for you or not. And each individual community is different. So if you're interested and you're curious, you can always try and see what it's like. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. So let's get into some of the individual misunderstandings that you'll see. Most of this is focused on the Theravada tradition because as you make your way through the various meditation centers, retreat centers, temples, various books or Dhamma talks and things like this, you may get exposure to some of these things. So let's just discuss one thing at a time. And I've got some pictures here like I used in the book in order to help you understand what I'm talking about. The first one is called in Thai, we call it Guat Nam, or you can refer to this in English as pouring water ceremony. Essentially, the belief here is that after people have made offerings, typically household practitioners are making offerings to the ordained practitioners, all the household practitioners will go and get these little urns of water and they will pour the urns of water into this little bowl as the monks are chanting. And the belief is, is that whatever merit that you produced by making offerings to the ordained practitioners, by you pouring this water while the monks are chanting, you are now transferring that merit to your relatives who have passed away. So if you've got mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, grandparents that have passed away, this is a belief that you can produce some kind of good, wholesome actions here now in this life. And then as you pour this water, it's transferring that good merit to them. This is not the Buddhist teachings whatsoever, because the Buddha taught that we are the owners, heirs of our gamma. Whether we do things that are wholesome or we do things that are unwholesome, it's only us who are inheriting the benefits of that. We can't transfer gamma from one person to the next. And from my experience, this is a way of kind of saying like, all right, well, I don't need to practice the teachings too much this life because once I die, my relatives are going to do a bunch of good things for me and then they're going to transfer their merit to me. Well, that's not how any of this works whatsoever. And this is a belief that you will see amongst many Theravada communities. This is one of the most common things that you'll see. And then what they will typically do is once they pour this water in this little urn is they will go outside and kind of dump it on a tree or some plant. And what you might hear from them is they'll say that the 
plant absorbs the water, it goes through the plant and then the water particles go out through the leaves and this goes up to heaven and to the angels, right? This is all belief. This is all superstition. This is all ceremony, rites and rituals, things that Gautama Buddha never taught. He taught that we need to learn and practice the teachings that anything we do, either wholesome or unwholesome, we inherit that result or that consequence. So we can't transfer things to other people. Otherwise, Max could go out and do some harm to somebody. Let's just say he murdered somebody. Well, then I could go do a whole bunch of good things and then I could pour this water and transfer it to Max and he would get out of jail. Well, if that sounds not possible to you, then that's why, because it's not the truth. And people just believe this and they haven't really looked at the real teachings and it's just been handed down from person to person to person and they just don't understand that what they're doing is not the true real teachings of the buddha the second one here is in thai we call it namon or blessed water where what happens is during a particular event they will consider it a ceremony and at some point there's this big bowl of water and a monk will light a candle and drip wax into this bowl of water. And the thought is, is that the monk chanting and dripping this wax into the water is creating blessed water or holy water. And then at some point during the ceremony, the monk will take this kind of end of a broom, it looks like, but it's been made specifically for this. But you get the idea that it's kind of like straw and they'll dip it in the water and then they'll throw out the water with this device that looks somewhat like a broom and the thought is is that this water is blessed water or holy water or something like that and that it's somehow going to cleanse you or purify the mind and it's not possible it just doesn't work that way in fact you guys are going to see those of you that are in the buddha wajana books and you're studying the teachings of the buddha through his own words there's a book called Lowly Arts, where the Buddha actually goes through this particular Dhamma is all devoted to talking about these mystical, magical things where the Buddha was saying, don't do these things. These things don't lead to enlightenment. And he specifically calls out this one because it was probably something that was going on amongst the Brahmin priest at the time. And he calls it out specifically. And he says, don't make blessed water this holy water, this sacred water. Don't bless houses. Don't bless things. And he talks about how this isn't a way that's going to lead people to enlightenment. So he calls this particular one out. But because people don't have access to the pure teachings of the Buddha and they don't actually read the Pali Canon and they don't practice the Pali Canon, they're continuing to do these things from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. A third thing that you might see at Theravada temples or meditation centers or various venues around Theravada tradition is that once people make offerings to ordained practitioners, they will oftentimes have this thread and they will tie it around your wrist. It's called Sai Sin or sacred thread. And it's meant to be kind of like a little gift from the ordained practitioner. But the ordained practitioner is usually going to be chanting and doing something while they're putting it on. They may even get some namon and kind of sprinkle it on you while they're or after they tie this string on your wrist. 
And the idea is the sacred thread has some kind of special power that if you wear it and continue to wear it, that it will help you in your life, right? For while you're wearing it. But again, this is all belief. This isn't based on any teachings of the Buddha. There's no way to pour water, sprinkle water, or tie something on your wrist that's going to change the condition of the mind. It's only through learning, independently verifying the teachings, through practice of the teachings, that the mind is going to be trained to gradually experience more and more of an enlightened mind through acquiring wisdom. There is no wisdom here that is being shared from one person to the other in order to train the mind. In fact, in my view, these things are actually quite dangerous because it leads the individuals who are participating in these things to think that this is in fact the Buddhist teachings and that somehow these things are going to be beneficial for the individual, when in fact it's really part of wrong view. They're not practicing right view if they believe that these rites, rituals, or ceremonies are actually somehow beneficial to them. So it can actually take a practitioner in the wrong direction of the path to enlightenment. Are there any questions on any of these three? I have a question, David. So on one hand, it seems pretty clear that a lot of these rites and rituals here are just not doing anything like what they're being purported to do. There's no magical powers going on here. So it's not going to help one attain enlightenment. But on the other hand, it seems that in, in certain areas of Buddhist teachings, and in that the book you just showed us, Lowly Arts, which we'll get to in the Pali Canon study group, it seems that the, the Buddha is saying it's more that they're just not relevant to the practice of training the mind. And maybe there is some thing that's happening to the water when you bless it, for example. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on which of those it is, or whether it's a bit of both, or whether it even applies to, uh, or whether it's different to different rites and rituals. There's nothing here that is part of the path to enlightenment. Because remember, the Buddha said very clearly in the Four Noble Truths, the way leading to the complete elimination of discontentedness is the Eightfold Path, right? The Eightfold Path are those eight steps that the mind goes through in terms of training the mind. And that primary first step is right view and establishing an understanding of right view through understanding the Four Noble Truths and then progressing through training of the mind of this Eightfold Path. None of these things are part of that Eightfold Path. And then when you look at the 10 fetters, which are the 10 pollutions of the mind or the 10 taints, he talks about these 10 things need to be eliminated from the mind in order to experience enlightenment. And even to get to the first stage of enlightenment, you have to eliminate the first three fetters. And one of those three fetters, just to get to the first stage of enlightenment, is to eliminate wrong observances and wrong behaviors. These wrong behaviors and wrong observances are the rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. These are the type of things that were going on prior to the Buddha's enlightenment and during his lifetime too with the Brahmin priest. And the Buddha observed that these people, the farmers and workers and people in that particular region of the world were being led astray, thinking that if they just paid money to these Brahmin priests, and these Brahmin priests went off and did some kind of ceremony to appease all of these gods that they believed in during that time frame, 
that that would somehow lead to a better life for them. And what the Buddha was teaching them is, is no, you need to actually train the mind. You need to make better decisions. You need to understand this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result, essentially the result of your decisions. And by learning about these things and awakening the mind to understand this, then the mind comes to realize that none of these mystical, magical rites, rituals, ceremonies are actually doing anything to improve the condition of the mind and condition of your life. Because the condition of your life is based on your decisions that you make. You can't go out and talk harshly and aggressively and disparage people and have arguments and fight with people and then do some kind of ceremony and get some water sprinkled on you and all of that is going to disappear. Because when you go back around those same people, they're going to remember how aggressive and harsh and rude and disrespectful you were and they're going to treat you the same way. So these kind of rites, rituals, ceremonies, mystical, magical things, they don't actually change the condition of your mind and they don't change the condition of your life because you haven't made any decisions to improve your wisdom, your moral conduct, and your mental discipline. All you've done is poured some water or water was sprinkled on you or you had something tied on your wrist whether you tie a piece of string from a monk or you tie a piece of plastic from a three-year-old child, it's the same thing. There's no difference in that. And you can see that very clearly if you look at what's really transpiring here. So it's superstition, essentially. It's superstition. And these things were mostly part of things that other people were already practicing before they brought the Buddhist teachings in. So some of these things were being practiced during the lifetime of the Buddha by other people and the Buddha saw them and observed them and kind of cautioned people and taught people that these things don't lead to enlightenment. But other things were being practiced by other indigenous traditions. And then when Buddhist teachings came in, they didn't just get rid of everything that they were doing before. They just kind of merged it all together and it just became very fuzzy and very gray. So this isn't an attempt at actively going against what the Buddha taught or actively thinking that this is better than what the Buddha thought. It's just that as the teachings came in, people were already doing other things and believing in other things, and they just didn't penetrate into the Buddhist teachings and investigate them deep enough because they didn't have access to the teachings to be able to investigate them deep enough. And they just retained and held on to the things that they were already doing. This is the mind holding on, the core problem that the Buddha discovered, craving, desire, attachment. You know, if you've had generations of generations of not just, you know, prior to monks coming in, this tying of bracelets, it was done by various shaman and your aunts and uncles and moms and dads and grandparents, all these people tying things not just on wrists, but if you come to Thailand, they will tie them on trees, they will tie them in lots of different places. And this was going on long before the Buddhist teachings came along. So once the Buddhist teachings come along, and these same people who grew up with these traditions and these beliefs, then start becoming monks, they didn't just get rid of everything that they had learned before, because they didn't get this clean transmission of Buddhist teachings. By the time Buddhism came from Sri Lanka to Thailand, it wasn't this clean, crystal clear Buddhist teachings. 
it was already kind of affected by impermanence over many generations by the time it actually got to Thailand. So you've got this kind of tainted Buddhist teachings merging with these indigenous folk traditions and superstition. And now what you've got in some communities is you've got this just mix, this hodgepodge of different things. And it's only when you interact with the pure teachings of the Buddha that once you get on this path and you understand it and you train in it, that you see the condition of your mind improving and you realize those things that you might have been doing in the past had no connection to what it took for you to attain enlightenment whatsoever. Okay, thank you, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Sure. So let's go to the next set of things that I was planning to talk about, which is the fourth one here is about ordained practitioners of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. If you interact with people of the ordained path, what you're going to notice is what I've taught you is to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all people. Don't put yourself above people, but also don't put yourself below people. Well, what you're going to see if you end up interacting with ordained practitioners is if you why them or you show respect to them, they're not going to most likely why you back. I've only had very few ordained practitioners ever why me back and show respect back in the same way. And I ask them, you know, why? I've asked many people why they don't do this. And the response that I get by all of them is what they've been taught is that they follow 227 precepts. And people in the household practitioners, household life, we follow essentially five or eight or 10 precepts, depending on what we end up deciding. And they feel that since they're practicing 227 precepts, that they shouldn't have to show respect to us, that we should show respect to them. Well, this isn't what the Buddha taught whatsoever. It's not the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha taught to be respectful, kind, polite to all beings. There's actually a story of Gautama Buddha actually whying his doctor because he had a doctor at one point that treated him and he actually showed respect to this doctor. And one of the things that if you were interested is if a male ordained practitioner, a bhikkhu, says that because they follow 227 precepts, then they don't need to why us. And this is kind of a pecking order that we're supposed to adhere to. Well, this is something that they're missing is that the bikinis, the female ordained practitioners, they actually follow 311 precepts. So if they go on this logic of whoever's following the most precepts should actually not have to why somebody, then that means that the male ordained practitioners should be whying all the females and the females don't have to why them back if this isn't true, the real teachings. But the more I talk about this, probably what you're hearing is this sounds like arrogance. This sounds like pride. This sounds like putting yourself above somebody, right? Or below somebody. And by this being a practice within the ordained tradition, then this is inhibiting a lot of ordained practitioners from attaining enlightenment because in their mind, if they think that they're above household practitioners and they are to be respected so much higher and they don't have to respect the household practitioners, then their mind still has ego. It still has conceit. 
it still has this pride and this arrogance. Therefore, they're not going to get to enlightenment. So I share this in the book for you to understand that if you're around ordained practitioners, they're not going to why you, but I'm also sharing this for ordained practitioners so that they can understand that they need to let go of this practice of not showing respect to household practitioners because it's the household practitioners that go out and they work and they work hard and they save their money and they collect resources and they give those resources to the ordained practitioners in order to live their life. Without these household practitioners, the ordained practitioners wouldn't be able to actually conduct their life in the way that they do. So if I was ordained, I would have an enormous amount of respect and gratitude for the household practitioners because they're the ones who are providing food, water, shelter, clothing, and medical care for me to live my life. And in fact, even in my role right now, I accept donations from students and I live from these donations and I have an enormous amount of respect. If someone provides me $5, $50, $500, whatever amount, whether it's even two or $3, I always take time to send a personal thank you because I really appreciate and I also understand how you go out into the world and you work and you apply effort and then when you decide that you're going to make a donation to me that's something that you're choosing to offer to me as a way of showing gratitude and appreciation for what i'm doing for you and sharing the teachings so i'm highly appreciative to all the people who support me and i encourage the bhikkhus and bikinis to do the same thing is show this respect and gratitude to the household practitioners and don't allow their mind to have this arrogance or ego or pride putting yourself above household practitioners. There's nowhere in the Buddhist teachings that he says that ordained practitioners should not show respect to household practitioners. It doesn't exist. And in fact, his teachings say just the opposite. In the Ten Fetters, he talks about eliminating conceit, eliminating arrogance and pride. And I have a couple of his teachings that I would like to flip to the next slide, even though I haven't covered five and six here. I would like to cover this with the Buddha's actual words because perhaps an ordained practitioner won't actually heave the advice that I'm sharing here in order to eliminate this from their practice. So they might be interested in actually learning the Buddha's words. What the Buddha says is gain honor and praise are an obstacle even for an arahant. It says, bhikkhus, gain honor and praise, I say, are an obstacle even for a bhikkhu who is an arahant, that's someone who's fully enlightened, one with taints destroyed, one who's completely eliminated the ten fetters. When this was said, the venerable Ananda, that's the Buddha's closest student, asked the master teacher Gautama, Why, venerable sir, are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle even for a bhikkhu with taints destroyed? The Buddha speaking again. I do not say, Ananda, that gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind. So once somebody's mind is liberated, if someone gives you gain, honor, and praise, it's not an obstacle because your mind is already liberated. 
but I say they are an obstacle to his attainment of those pleasant dwellings in this very life which are achieved by one who dwells diligent, ardent, and resolute. So dreadful, Ananda, are gain, honor, and praise, so bitter, vow, obstructive, to achieving the unsurpassed security from bondage. Unsurpassed security from bondage is enlightenment. What he's saying here in this sentence is gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle for someone to attain enlightenment. So if you're looking for gain, honor, and praise, having pride because of arrogance, then it's going to inhibit you from attaining enlightenment. And then the last one, he goes on and he says, Therefore, Ananda, you should train yourselves thus. We will abandon the arisen, gain, honor, praise, and we will not let the arisen, gain, honor, and praise persist obsessing our mind. Thus should you train yourselves. So what he's saying here is abandon any interest in having gain, honor, and praise. And if any gain, honor, and praise is arisen in your mind, you know you're not yet enlightened. And what he's saying is let it go. Do not allow it to obsess your mind. And this is how you should train yourself. So if a ordained practitioner is waiting for household practitioners to why them or show respect and they don't show respect back, essentially it's this gain, honor, and praise that is obsessing their mind rather than practicing this loving kindness and compassion and seeing all beings as equal. The way to enlightenment, one aspect of the path is seeing all beings as equal, not putting yourself above or below others. There's another teaching here that I share in the book as well from the Buddha. It's titled, This Spiritual Life is Not Live for the Sake of Deceiving People. Bhikkhus, this spiritual life is not live for the sake of deceiving people and cajoling them, nor for the benefit of gain, honor, and praise, nor for the benefit of winning in debates, nor with the thought, let the people know me thus. But rather, this spiritual life is live for the sake of restraint, abandoning, dispassion, and cessation. So what he's sharing here is this spiritual life isn't live for deceiving people, for making people think that you're so wonderful, you're so great, look at me, look how wonderful I am. Cajoling someone is to kind of coax somebody or try to convince them to do something through constantly kind of persuading them to do it. And he says, nor is it for the gain, honor, and praise for this pride or winning in debates, kind of winning arguments. Because once you learn the Buddhist teachings and you have this deep wisdom, you can pretty much prove any situation and help everyone see the truth and wisdom. But if you come at it with arrogance where you just want to win an argument or win a debate with the thought of let people know how great I am, let the people know me thus, then the mind is having this arrogance and pride. And what he says at the end is he says this spiritual life is for restraint, holding back, for abandoning and dispassion, giving things up, right? Letting things go. 
and for cessation, which is the elimination of discontentedness. That's what this life is about. So as you're around ordained practitioners, you should respect them. You should have politeness, kindness, and friendliness towards ordained practitioners because that's your practice. Your practice shouldn't be based on what other people do. So if you show respect and gratitude to somebody and they choose not to respect you back, that's their practice. So when I'm around ordained practitioners, I still am very polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And if they choose not to be that way back with me, then that's their choice and that's their practice. I don't judge them for it. I don't look up to them. I don't look down to them. If they respect me and show respect, my mind is unaffected. If they don't show respect, my mind is unaffected. I'm going to be the same way whether they choose to respect and acknowledge my respect or not. My respect isn't contingent upon what other people do. I'm going to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in all situations because it's the right thing to do. And I would encourage ordained practitioners to do the same, and I would encourage all of you to do the same as well. But just be aware that that's what you'll probably encounter. I've had a few situations where ordained practitioners do why me. And when you see that, I just know like, okay, these people understand the teachings very well because they're comfortable to show respect and gratitude to all people. You also see household practitioners when they're around ordained practitioners get down on their knees and they will actually bow to ordained practitioners, putting themselves oftentimes below ordained practitioners. This can also be dangerous for the mind, not only putting yourself above people, but putting yourself below people. One of the things that I observe is that oftentimes when people put themselves below someone, they become very nervous and uncalm. Their mind starts to be unpeaceful and kind of shaky, right? Because they look up to somebody so highly. Or the other thing that can happen is if you put yourself below the monks and you just think, okay, it's the monks that need to learn and practice the teachings. I'm just very low, uneducated. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just going to let them learn and practice and get to enlightenment, supporting the monks. I'm not really going to put in much effort in this life to actually learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment. There's some people who think that way. They think that they're just going to go out and work and make all the offerings to the ordained practitioners, they're not actually going to strive or try to learn and practice to attain enlightenment themselves. They're just going to support the ordained practitioners to do that work. But the way that this should all be working is that everybody should be working towards enlightenment, not just the ordained practitioners. So if the mind is constantly putting ordained practitioners above you, you're choosing to put them above you, then you may have a tendency to be complacent and not actually learn and practice the teachings. So it's important for all parties, household practitioners and ordained practitioners, that we all just mutually respect each other and that we see each other all as equals, being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings, no matter whether they're ordained or unordained. The fifth thing here that I covered in this chapter is chanting or mantras. 
We cover this quite a bit on Wednesdays. So you've already heard me share that chanting and mantras don't have any special magical or mystical powers. There's some people that believe that if you chant certain chants, either a certain frequency or a certain tone or a certain number of times in a given day, that there'll be instant benefits. That if you just repeat these phrases over and over and over again, you're going to instantly get to enlightenment after 10 years of chanting this over and over. Or it's going to give you an extra long life. Or you're going to get rid of all your health problems. Or you're going to find that special love that you needed. Or you're going to instantly get rid of all this unwholesome gamma and generate wholesome gamma just by chanting something, right? This is not part of Gautama Buddha's teachings. He didn't teach this. He taught to learn, reflect on the teachings, and practice the teachings so that you can train the condition of the mind to improve and become better and better, making wiser and wiser decisions in your life and improving the condition of your mind in your life. I've talked about what chanting is and how it can actually benefit you, but it's all based on the Eightfold Path. Things like helping you to ease the mind into meditation and ease out of meditation, helping you to become aware of the breath as you ease into meditation, helping you with memorization and concentration, clarity of mind and things like this. So chanting and mantras are helpful for those kind of things, but they don't have any mystical, magical powers that are going to instantly create some kind of benefit. And then the last one here that I'll share on this particular slide is about Buddha statues. You'll see lots of different statues in the world. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there were no statues because there was actually a real life Buddha there. And people would go to him and have confidence in him and they would ask for teachings and guidance. But after he died, a few hundred years later, the people who were still around and practicing the Buddhist teachings came in contact with the Greek people who were making statues of all the different gods that they believed in. So the Buddhist people started to actually cast statues of the Buddha. And this is why you see statues in the world of the Buddha. And almost every statue you see is very different because of impermanence, but also because the people who were casting statues, they didn't really know what the Buddha looked like because they didn't live during his lifetime. There is a description of the Buddha in the Pali Canon that this particular artwork that I'm sharing here is based on. The vast majority of the statues that we see in the world, if they're in Thailand, they look somewhat Thai. If they're in China, they look somewhat Chinese. If they're in Japan, they look somewhat Japanese. And this is each individual culture trying to cast statues to make the Buddha appear as if he's from their culture because of craving, desire, attachment, wanting the Buddha to look like them. But in reality, he was just a human being, a man who lived in the region of the world that today we call Nepal or Northeast India. And this artist who drew this depiction of the Buddha based on the description in the Pali Canon, he was Thai who actually did this artwork. But you can see that the image looks and resembles someone who we might consider from that region of the world today. So I have full confidence that this picture 
is a better representation of what this man, this individual looked like during his lifetime. And these statues though, they have all these different mystical, magical things that are associated with them. There's people who will bow to statues that will offer food and water to statues, people who will pray to statues, people who think that the spirit of the Buddha is in those statues. And if you, you know, stand up too high or you do something that's kind of against what they think is appropriate in the presence of this statue, they can become very mad and very angry because they're attached. They're having craving, desire, attachment. But you can rest assured that the Buddha never taught to have a Buddha statue. It doesn't mean if you have one that you've done something wrong, right? If you would like to have a Buddha statue, go ahead and get one if you'd like. But that statue by itself isn't going to produce enlightenment. And if you're worshiping the statue, that's not going to produce enlightenment. That's going to hinder you. If you're doing ceremonies and feeding the statue, that's going to hinder you because you're not understanding right view. If you're praying to the statue and asking for things, thinking that the spirit of the Buddha is in that statue, that's a practice of wrong view, and it's all going to hinder you on this path to enlightenment. Some people have Buddha statues in their environment because they say it helps them to remember to be sure to learn and practice the teachings. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. You can use it that way. You can use a Buddha statue however you choose, but just ensure that you understand that there is nothing about having a Buddha statue that's going to necessarily help you on the path in terms of worshiping it, feeding it, praying to it, or any of these other things, because that's not what leads to enlightenment is those rites, rituals, and ceremonies. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on any of the three that I've talked about so far. What would be a respectful way to greet an ordained practitioner if we meet one as lay people? Uh, I usually just why them, just like I would any other person. If I see Bill or Max or Master V or Manal or any of you guys in person, and as I do at the beginning of each class and as I do at the end of each class, I why all of you. I would do the same thing with a ordained practitioner as well. In Thailand, they use a different language for the monks. There's actually multiple languages in Thailand, different dialects. And there's a special language that we use with the monks. Instead of saying Sawadi, we say Namasakan. And that's one way that you could choose to greet a ordained practitioner if you like, but you don't have to. You should just be yourself and be comfortable to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful just as you are to all individuals. Okay, thanks, David. I have a question about the, the fetter of uh, wrong observances of behavior. Is this referring to whether or not we do something resembling a rites, uh, rites or rituals, or is it more about how the mind relates to it? Is it more about attachment to rites and rituals? Yeah, this is interesting because you can have two people come into a temple and both of them bow to a statue, for example, and get up and leave. And in one person's mind, they might think that they're worshiping the Buddha, the spirit of the Buddha is in that statue, and by them bowing and praying to that statue, some beneficial thing is going to happen for them, right? 
But you don't know that because all you're seeing is them walk into the temple and bow to the statue, right? And you can have a second person come in and bow to the statue. And in their mind, they might actually be thinking that they have great appreciation and gratitude for the Buddha. And they're coming into the temple to do that in order to empty their own ego and choose to show appreciation and gratitude for these teachings that have been handed down to them over many, many years. So what you saw with your eyes is two people coming in and bowing, getting up and leaving. But the action might be the same, but what's in the mind is completely different from one practitioner to the other. You don't have any need or any interest to necessarily determine what one person is doing versus another. What those people are doing for their practice is their practice. What's important is your practice, that you understand what you're doing in this practice, and that if you choose to bow to a statue, that you're not doing it for some beneficial result of prayer or spirit or worship or something like that. If other people choose to bow to statues for any particular reason, that's up to them. That's their choice. That's their practice. And everybody might do that for different reasons. <coughs> but what I encourage you to do is that if you do it, that you ensure that you know why you're doing it and that you do it in connection with some aspect of the teachings that you know is the path to enlightenment. So what it comes down to is how your mind relates to something and how your mind understands something. So if two people came in and bowed to a statue, it doesn't mean that that's wrong. It doesn't mean that that behavior is wrong and they're not going to get to enlightenment. It's all about what the mind thinks and what the mind experiences and how the mind looks at things. And for the one person who thinks the spirit of the Buddha is in there and they're praying to the Buddha, and that's all they have to do is come into a temple, bow every day, and that's it. And then they go outside, they speak harsh to people, they steal, they lie, and all these other things. This person's never going to get to enlightenment because they have wrong view. They think all they need to do is bow to the spirit and pray to the spirit, which doesn't exist. And this person's going to go out there and still make unwholesome decisions and still have unwholesome results because they're lying, they're stealing, they're doing other harmful things in the world. This other person who comes in still bows, but in their mind, they're all about practicing the teachings, ensuring that they're not stealing, ensuring that they're not lying, ensuring that they are polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings. So there's no part of this practice where we should be judging other people and what they do or what they don't do. It's all about your practice. So if you choose to go into a temple and bow, or if you choose to have a Buddha statue in your environment and you bow or you observe any particular thing with this statue, just be sure you understand what these things mean. And that's going to help you so that you move along this path to enlightenment because wrong behaviors and observances is the mind thinking that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship leads to enlightenment. And if your mind thinks that, then that's a pollution of the mind based on the Buddhist teachings. And when you eliminate that and you eradicate that fetter or that taint or that pollution of mind, and you realize that this path has nothing to do with rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, then you've eliminated that fetter from the mind and it's time to focus on all the other fetters 
because there's 10 of them and this might be one that's easy for you to let go of. A lot of people who are coming from other traditions of teachings, not necessarily Buddhist, but other traditions moving into Buddhism, a lot of times people are trying to get away from the rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, knowing that those things haven't produced the benefit that they were looking for. And oftentimes people are attracted to Buddhism because they understand that the Buddha didn't teach rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. But if you got exposure to Mahayana Buddhism or Vajrayana Buddhism, there are rites, rituals, ceremonies there that might lead you to believe that that is part of the Buddhist teachings. And even in Theravada Buddhism, as we were talking previously, there's people who do rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that might lead you to believe that that's part of the Buddhist teachings, but I'm sharing that it's not. Okay, thank you, David. We have a question from Alan. Are Buddhist relics a thing in Thailand? For example, bones or ashes of monks revered like saints? Yes, relics are really big in Thailand. A lot of people hold on to these things. There's some temples here that say that they actually have bone fragments of the Buddha or a tooth of the Buddha or uh, one of his close students. And I've been to temples like that that have those kind of things. And people feel and people believe that having these things in their possession or at the temple creates some kind of powerful experience there for people who enter into that temple. Once again, the Buddha didn't teach that that is going to produce enlightenment, right? It's all about learning, reflecting, and practicing so that you can see the truth for yourself in training the mind. Just having a bone of your grandmother or having a bone of somebody who lived 2,500 years ago isn't going to train the mind to speak politely kindly, friendly, and respectfully. The mind, if it goes out there and you talk harshly and aggressive with people, doesn't matter what bones that you just came in contact with, you're going to have unwholesome results because of that. We have a question from Javier. Is it good to visit Theravada monasteries? What if there are none within a thousand miles? Temples can be helpful, but they're not required. Essentially what a temple is, is it's a community center. It's a place where people have donated land, they've donated resources to build some buildings, and now people that are interested in learning and practicing the teachings have a place to come together and learn together and understand the teachings. And this can be a beneficial environment to meet people of similar interests, and you can meet people who are perhaps on the path and interested in having some kind of community, but it's not required. You can go off in the forest like the Buddha did. He didn't have any temple when he attained enlightenment. He just went out in the forest and he trained his mind. And a temple is not required. It's one of those external things. If you've got temples near you and you're interested in connecting with other people in this community of Theravada traditions, sure, go visit a temple and connect up with other people. But don't feel like that is something that you have to do or you're required to do. You can learn and practice these teachings right here, right now, wherever you're at. You don't necessarily need to go to a temple. But if you would like to experience that, and there are some that are near you, then go experience that. Or if someday you travel to an area where there are temples, you can go experience that. But essentially, it's just 
buildings with people around that are learning and practicing these teachings. And the vast majority of the temples here in Thailand are essentially empty. They have monks that are living in the living quarters, but the actual buildings where the teachings get shared are essentially empty. You know, there's usually big statues of the Buddha and very ornate artwork and things like this. But the way that these teachings work is you need to seek it out, right? The monks aren't hanging a sign out in front of their temple that says, you know, Dhamma talk at this time or that time, be sure to come or else something bad's going to happen to you. They just essentially live their life and they learn and practice the teachings. And if people come to them and ask them for help and ask them for guidance, they will teach and they will guide. But if nobody asks them anything, then they just live their own life as their own practitioners. So you might be surprised when you go into a temple that it's non-climactic, other than the fact that it's just usually very beautiful, lots of artwork, lots of statues, very ornate, and it's a very interesting place to look and observe. But in terms of what actually goes on there, it's just essentially a place for people to live and gather as a community center and actually learn the teachings of the Buddha. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay. So now to what I think is the very last thing is the 7, 8, and 9. This was in the book as well. Talking about how some communities consider Gautama Buddha a god, avatar, or lord. You will even see in some books or in some communities people refer to Lord Buddha. And in the book, I felt it was very important to make sure people understood that Gautama Buddha himself never referred to himself as God, as an avatar, or a Lord. And this can be very confusing for someone coming from other traditions. Or if you've learned with me and you go into various communities and people start referring to the Buddha as a God, avatar, or Lord. Because what most people think of as a Lord, kind of a common definition, is someone or something having power or authority or influence, kind of a master or ruler, you know, someone who's going to act in a superior or domineering way. Some people refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, and people who are in Christian traditions consider Jesus Christ to be the only Lord and Savior. So if we refer to Gautama Buddha as Lord Buddha, then people who come from other traditions are instantly going to reject the Buddhist teachings because they consider Jesus Christ to be the only Lord and Savior. And they aren't interested in learning from another Lord. Well, Gautama Buddha never referred to himself as a God, Avatar, or Lord. His interest is to share his teachings with the whole world so that everyone can experience enlightenment and you can experience it too. But if we use these terminologies, then it's going to kind of hinder certain people and block certain people from actually gaining access to the teachings because there's some people who don't have an understanding of God or a belief in God. And if people refer to the Buddha as a God, then they're going to reject his teachings and not even get into the very first talk or even sit down to understand what meditation is all about or even try to understand the slightest little bit about the Buddhist teachings. Or if we refer to him as an avatar, which is a reincarnation of a divine teacher, 
right? Or if we refer to him as a Lord, this is going to have people push his teachings away. So we should refer to the Buddha in the way that he referred to himself. He always considered himself a teacher and people around him during his lifetime refer to him as aesthetic Gautama or essentially monk Gautama. And there are some people who called him teacher or master teacher. They didn't really use the word Buddha around him. That's something that came after his death because I'll explain a little bit later here what a Buddha is, but the people around him that were studying with him and that were experiencing enlightenment, they knew he was a Buddha. But the people who weren't studying with him, they didn't know that he was a Buddha. They just looked at him as a teacher. And there were many teachers who were teaching some type of spiritual path during the Buddha's lifetime. The Buddha referred to himself as the Tathagata, which we don't 100% know what this word means. And I put some various options in the book of what it could mean. But when he referred to himself, he referred to himself as the Tathagata. And this is essentially a way of not referring to me or my or I. And he didn't refer to himself as a Buddha or a Lord or a God. So we shouldn't either. We should just look at him as a teacher or a master teacher. And if you would like to refer to him as the Buddha or Gautama Buddha, sure, you're welcome to do that. But if we start veering into referring to him as a God, Avatar, or Lord, we're just inhibiting other people from actually gaining access to these teachings because they're going to reject those things on face value. And I understand why, because that's not what the Buddha is. He's not a God, Avatar, or Lord. You'll also hear people that will say things like, may the Buddha bless you, or may the triple gem bless you, or may the triple jewel bless you. Or people will even refer to that water that I talked about from the monks being sprinkled as a blessing. Well, the Buddha never taught anything related to a blessing. What a blessing is typically defined as is God's favor and protection a prayer asking for God's favor or protection. So the Buddha never taught this as part of his teachings. There's nothing that anybody can say or do in this life that's going to give you a blessing. Sprinkling water on you, praying around you, touching the top of your head. If you walk out in front of a car, you're still going to die, right? There's nothing that's going to protect you other than your own decisions, your own learning, your own practice, your own wisdom, making good, wholesome decisions in this life is what's going to protect you. So when we talk about going to the Buddha, his teachings, and the community for protection or refuge, what we're talking about is through learning and practicing these teachings, you're going to have more and more wisdom to make better and better decisions in your life and those better decisions are what's going to protect you, not any kind of blessing. So if you hear people say this, may the triple gem bless you, may the Buddha bless you, may the triple jewel bless you, they're just not understanding that blessings aren't part of the Buddha's teachings. And then lastly, you'll hear people refer to enlightenment as 
you becoming a Buddha or you attaining Buddhahood or someone might say to you that you have Buddha nature. You won't hear this in the Theravada tradition. This is mainly from other traditions that they will say you are all Buddhas. You all have Buddha nature. Once you learn and practice these teachings, you will attain Buddhahood. Well, this isn't what the Buddha taught at all because he didn't even refer to himself as a Buddha during his lifetime. He certainly didn't refer to enlightened beings as a Buddha or a Buddhahood or Buddha nature. What a Buddha is, is a Buddha is a individual who has awoken to enlightenment on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides. They did it solely through their own efforts without any help from anyone around them. They essentially look at the world around them. These natural laws become very clear and apparent to them. They discover these natural laws and it leads to their own awakening. They declare certain teachings upon their awakening. This is what we call the Dhamma. They declare these teachings. These are the teachings that led to this person's awakening. And now during the course of their life, they're going to dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those self-discovered teachings with others. And countless people are going to attain enlightenment during that person's lifetime. And then they're going to leave the teachings in such a condition that upon their death, more and more people can continue to attain enlightenment. So these are the three main criteria. There's other criteria as well, but these are the three criteria of a Buddha. They attain enlightenment on their own without the help or support of any other people around them. They don't have any declared teachers. Second, during their lifetime, they declare teachings that are going to be very different than anyone else who's teaching at the time. And they're going to share those teachings with countless individuals during their lifetime and lead countless other people to enlightenment during their lifetime. Then upon their death, the teachings are going to be left in such a condition that countless more people will attain enlightenment after their death. And this is essentially why people really didn't refer to aesthetic Gautama or master teacher Gautama as a Buddha until after he died because they could see that he met all three criteria. There were people during his lifetime that knew he was a Buddha, but most people didn't refer to him that way until after he died. And he never really referred to himself as a Buddha either. So everyone is not a Buddha. A Buddha is a very unique individual. It's very rare for a Buddha to awaken in the world. The last Buddha that the world currently is aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. When someone attains enlightenment, they have attained enlightenment or they are experiencing enlightenment. They are an arahant. They are an enlightened being. We can use these different words, but they haven't attained Buddhahood because they're not a Buddha and they don't have Buddha nature because they're not a Buddha. A Buddha has such deep, profound wisdom because of their self-awakening and not having any teachers whatsoever. They have such deep wisdom that their teachings are far beyond what any other being would be able to teach. 
and a Buddha is going to dedicate the rest of their life to sharing the teachings and countless individuals are going to attain enlightenment. So this individual that we refer to as Gotama Buddha, he struggled for many, 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 many lifetimes to attain enlightenment. And then he attained enlightenment and dedicated 45 years of the remaining part of his life to sharing these teachings into the world, developing the ordained path, sharing this with household practitioners, more and more and more people attained enlightenment during his lifetime. And he left the teachings in such a way that 2,500 years later, we're still talking about him and people are still attaining enlightenment after his death. No matter what you do from this point forward in your life, whether you attain enlightenment or you don't, your accomplishments in this area of sharing the teachings into the world are never going to match what an actual Buddha would be able to accomplish because of their profound wisdom. You may choose to go on and be a teacher and help others. You may choose to share this with your family and friends or something like that. And you may help others along the path in one way or another. But what a Buddha is able to accomplish because of their profound wisdom is far beyond what any other human being would be able to accomplish. So if anybody calls themselves a Buddha, or if anyone says they have attained Buddhahood, or they have Buddha nature, this is essentially putting themselves on the same level as somebody like Gautama Buddha. And in order to do that, there has to be ego there. And if there's ego, then the person can't be enlightened. And if they're not enlightened, they couldn't be a Buddha. So it's important that as you traverse the Buddhist communities and you hear people referring to themselves as a Buddha, or they might ask you, have you attained Buddhahood or do you have Buddha nature or these kind of things that you understand that it's just them misunderstanding the teachings. And it's these various offshoots of traditions of various people that have come up with these things. And if people are trying to put themselves on the same level as a Buddha, they're not even enlightened yet because there's still ego and arrogance there. We should have respect, gratitude and appreciation for all that Gautama Buddha did during his life in order to share these teachings into the world. And one of the best ways to respect a teacher is to learn and practice his teachings to attain enlightenment, not to try to put yourself on the same level referring to yourself as a Buddha or having attained Buddhahood or that you have Buddha nature. So I would encourage you to pursue this path and progress on this path to attain enlightenment, to become an enlightened being, to become an arahant. And having done that, your life in your mind is going to be so peaceful, so content, and so joyful that you won't care whether anyone refers to you as a Buddha or an enlightened being. You won't even care if anyone even knows you're enlightened or not. You'll just enjoy the experience and benefit of having worked over many years to learn and progress and train the mind to this point of enlightenment that you'll just be pleased with your own development. And at that point, you shouldn't even have any desire for anyone to even know that you're necessarily enlightened, that you will just progress in your life as you have with this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, but you won't be a Buddha. So 
that's the end of what I had to share with you guys today. But I would like to see if there's any questions on these last few that I talked about. Are we aware of any Buddhas existing prior to going to the Buddha? There's teachings in the Pali Canon where the Buddha is talking about previous Buddhas. And there's people that share that there were previous Buddhas. But there's also teachings on the Pali Canon, and we just studied them in that first book of Dhamma Trails, where the Buddha says that he was the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of this path to enlightenment. And he says it was unarisen, undeclared before him. And that's very clear when he says that. So there's a bit of this conflict, right? So as much of a big collection of teachings that we have in the Pali Canon, there's this one conflict that I've seen in the Pali Canon. And the reality is, is that we don't truly know 100%. People can say there were Buddhas before him, and they may be right or they may be wrong. And people can say that the Buddha was the only Buddha, Gautama Buddha. They may be right and they may be wrong. It doesn't change the fact that right now you're living in this human existence. You are unenlightened. You are in the cycle of rebirth. You need to learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment. How many Buddhas there were in the past, it honestly doesn't really matter. For me, I like to think that Gautama Buddha was the only Buddha because I only look at things that I see evidence of. And if there were Buddhas before Gautama Buddha, I would expect that there would be teachings from those other Buddhas still in the world that we can point to and we can say, aha, this is the first Buddhist teachings. This is the second Buddhist teachings. This is the third. This is the fourth. This is the fifth. And then here's where Gautama Buddha came in and he taught what he taught. Right. And we should be able to see those very clearly. But because I don't have any evidence in front of me, that shows where these teachings are and any of the teachings of these other Buddhas. Since I can't see it with my own eyes, with direct knowledge, I say that those Buddhas didn't exist. And I do have teachings from Gautama Buddha in my hand that I can read, I can learn, I can practice, I can see it improving the condition of the mind. I can see this path very clearly, which tells me that I know this person lived for sure. So, I tend to only say that there was only one Buddha, Gautama Buddha. But in reality, whether I'm right or wrong, it doesn't really matter because what's important is that each person, each being, learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment now in this life. That's what's really important. Okay, thank you, David. We have a question from IA. Can you please clarify who Shakyamuni Buddha is? Thank you. So there's different names that people give to what I'm referring to as Gautama Buddha. This prince who started out with the name Siddhartha Gautama ultimately becomes known by many different names. People call him aesthetic Gautama, monk Gautama, teacher Gautama, master teacher Gautama, recluse Gautama, Gautama Buddha, and there's different spellings of Gautama Buddha. And Sokiyama Buddha is one of those names that people give to this same individual. Because of impermanence, there's not just one way to refer to him. So you'll hear all these different names and ways of referring to him. But what they're referring to is this individual who shared these teachings of how to awaken the mind on this path to enlightenment. Okay, 
I wasn't sure whether to read this question, but I think actually it's probably a good one. Edward asks, David, who are you to judge? I'm not actually... In relation to misunderstandings of the teachings in general, I think. Sure. Great question, Edward. I'm not judging of whether somebody's good or bad or right or wrong, because the way that I define the word judge is putting yourself above or below somebody, essentially with arrogance, saying somebody's right or wrong. What I'm sharing is through my experience, these things here, I've discovered through direct knowledge and direct experience don't lead to enlightenment. So for example, the pouring of the water, I can see very clearly that pouring that water doesn't actually transfer merit from one person to the other. I can see it very clearly that I'm just pouring water. Just like I took this bottle and I poured water, there's no difference in pouring that water versus pouring other water. There's no way to take the good deeds that I've produced and transfer them to another person. Same thing with the water and sprinkling it. You can see very clearly that it doesn't improve the condition of the mind. Otherwise, all you would need to do is go see a monk and sprinkle this water and you could go every day and get this water sprinkled on you and your life would get better and the condition of your mind would get better. But that doesn't happen. And same thing with tying the string and we could go through all these different things that we're talking about. I'm not judging these things. What I'm sharing is from my experience and looking at this objectively, I can see that these things don't improve the condition of the mind or the condition of life. And I'm providing guidance if somebody chooses to learn that they can learn and observe these same truths that I'm sharing with you. So there's no judgment here. And I talk extensively, Edward, throughout the various talks that I've given of helping people to not judge and helping people understand that that's not beneficial. And one of the reasons why I know these things that I'm sharing with you is because at one time in my life, I did these things, right? I did pour water many hundreds of times. I did receive the sprinkling of the water from monks many hundreds of times. I've even been in ceremonies where I've held the bowl while the monk was sprinkling it. And I've actually been in situations where I sprinkled the water as well. Monks asked me to do it in the couple of lay ceremonies that I was doing. All of these things I've participated in. So I'm not judging and saying people who do these things are bad or wrong. What I'm doing is sharing teachings to help people see that if they are doing these things, that they can look at them objectively and see that they're not going to lead to an improved condition of mind and improved condition of their life. And for the students have been studying with me over many, many months and years, they've learned things that are completely opposite of these. So once the students learn what the Buddha actually taught, and they have been learning that over many months, if they go into an environment where these things are going on, I'm kind of preemptively helping them understand that when they enter into environments of Theravada Buddhist teachings and temples and they see these things going on to understand where they come from, from a historical perspective. And that way they can know what is the clear path to enlightenment. So out of compassion for all beings, with loving kindness and compassion for all beings, I share these things as a way to help people see what is the true real path of what leads to enlightenment. We have a question from Nick. Is it possible Shiva, Krishna, 
Jesus, Prophet Muhammad, etc., were Buddhas. They left teachings. I don't know about all those people that you talked about, but in order to be a Buddha, the person would need to have awakened to enlightenment on their own. They would have need to have helped countless people attain enlightenment during their lifetime and then leave teachings that lead to the awakening of other beings after their lifetime. I don't know that any of those people that you just mentioned, we could say that those things happen. And there's other criteria for a Buddha as well. In terms of Jesus Christ, one of the things that we know about a Buddha is a Buddha has awakened, they're enlightened, and they're no longer going to be reborn ever again. They're never coming back. They're never going to be reborn ever again. With Jesus Christ, he said, I will come again, right? A lot of people think that Jesus Christ didn't teach rebirth. And maybe what we have as Jesus Christ teachings today show that he didn't teach rebirth. But we know he said, I will come again. This is rebirth, right? So with Jesus saying that he's going to be reborn, with Jesus getting mad at the tax collectors and tipping over the tables at the church or the synagogue or wherever he was and showing anger, we know that he wasn't fully enlightened because if he was fully enlightened, he wouldn't be coming back and he wouldn't have gotten angry at those tax collectors, right? So I can say that, at least in the case of Jesus, that he's not a Buddha. I don't know much about Prophet Muhammad, but I don't think Prophet Muhammad was leading people to enlightenment during his life and leaving teachings to help more people attain enlightenment after their life. And I don't know much about Shiva at all, but the Buddha that I'm aware of and that I know his teachings lead to enlightenment is this Buddha we're talking about, Gautama Buddha. We have a question from Manal. If many during the time of Gautama Buddha were in pursuit of truth, would it be safe to say there were others before him who attained enlightenment on their own with or without the support of a teacher? Potentially, right? Because, you know, there are different paths, right? The way that I look at it as Jesus may not have been a perfectly fully enlightened Buddha, but if you look at Jesus's teachings, for example, a lot of them have a lot of similarities to the Buddhas. And if somebody kind of weaves through those teachings close enough and get to what Jesus was talking about as the Holy Spirit, but we're calling enlightenment, it could potentially be something close to what we might consider enlightenment. But that's very difficult for somebody to go through and kind of weave through that. And there might have been other people who experienced this human phenomenon that we call enlightenment. This path to enlightenment that the Buddha laid out is a path that the Buddha laid out to what we call nibbana or enlightenment. But I know this to be a human phenomenon. This is something that a human being has the ability and capability to experience through learning and practicing some set of teachings. And for me, the Buddhist teachings are what connects and what helps to clearly see what this path is. But people like Jesus or others who may have certain teachings that I'm not aware of and I'm ignorant of could be out there that lead to a similar place or the same place that can produce this human phenomenon that we call enlightenment. And I'm just unaware of those things, but they could surely exist. For me, 
what I share is Gautama Buddhist teachings because that's what's very clear and well understood by me. Okay. Well, thank you, David. That appears to be all of our questions. Okay. So, as you see, this area of Buddhist teachings, it's not black and white, right? A lot of times in various communities, we might think that the Buddhist teachings are black and white, but because of impermanence, there's various takes, various interpretations, and various approaches to all of this within Buddhist communities here in Thailand and outside of Thailand. What's important for you is that you learn and practice the teachings to see the truth for yourself. If a teacher's teachings are explaining things to you in a way that you can clearly independently observe for yourself, then you know that's the truth and you know that's wisdom. So anything that I share in the book, anything that I share in any of the talks, any of the things that I share as I'm teaching, you should be able to take these things, independently practice them, and see whether or not they're true or false, and whether or not it's leading the mind to a better and better condition. And if it is, then you know that you're learning the truth because it's helping you to acquire wisdom and the condition of the mind is improving. If what I'm sharing with you isn't, then you should talk to me and get clarification and make sure there's not something that you're misunderstanding. And then from there, you should be able to get more and more clarity on the teachings that would lead to enlightenment. But whether you learn with me or you learn with some other teacher, you should be able to independently see the truth for yourself. The path to enlightenment doesn't include superstition. It doesn't include mystical, magical things. It doesn't include belief. There is no belief in the Buddhist teachings. There's never a time that you will look at the Buddhist teachings where he says, just believe me, just believe me, just believe what I say here. He says just the opposite all the way throughout his teachings is he talks about investigating his teachings, interrogating his teachings, looking at his teachings to acquire direct knowledge. Uh, he talks about diving into his teachings, essentially, and really understanding them because that's how you're going to gain this wisdom in order to awaken the mind. And not every community understands that. But what I'm sharing here with you are some of the misunderstandings because when you dive into these things, you can't independently prove that pouring that water is going to transfer the good, wholesome deeds to another person. That can't be proven. And the only way for that to be true is if there's superstition, magical, mystical beliefs, and belief doesn't lead to enlightenment. The only way for this water to be sprinkled on you and to have any kind of benefit is if you believe it. There has to be some kind of superstition or mystical, magical powers there. And that's not what Gautama Buddha taught. And all these other things that I'm sharing are what rely on beliefs or superstitions or mystical, magical things. So you should be able to independently see the truth for yourself in any teacher's teachings. And as you learn and practice those, it should lead to wisdom. And that wisdom should lead to an improved condition of the mind where the mind goes from this anger to frustration, to irritation, to annoyance, 
to eventually the same things start happening and continue to happen and you feel peaceful. There's no arising of unwholesome mental states that the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. That's what enlightenment is. So thank you guys for participating in today's class. I appreciate all your questions. Thank you, Max, for moderating. We have a class coming up on Wednesday, which is about Buddhist chanting, but we're actually going to be learning and practicing meditation first, and then we're going to go into developing our Buddhist chanting practice based on how it can improve the condition of the mind, not the magical, mystical things that these teachings sometimes dive into. Then we're going to get into Saturday, which is the Pali Canon and English study group, where we're going to be in the book Sotapanna. We're going to be studying the first 27 chapters. So if you've got the Buddha Wajana books or you've downloaded it from our Facebook group, then you can read the first 27 chapters of that book, which will take you about an hour, right? It sounds like a lot, 27 chapters, but some of those chapters you can read in 30 seconds to a minute because they're just very short. It's a very small book. So on Saturday, we're going to be diving into that. And Sotapanna is the first stage of enlightenment called stream entry. So it's all about that. And then next Sunday, we're going to be into the frequently asked questions section of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. We're almost at the end of this group learning program. So we're coming to the close of this book, getting down to the frequently asked questions section. And then starting on February 3rd, we're going to be restarting this program, but we're actually putting in some new classes. The group learning program starts on a Wednesday, February 3rd, which is a day for meditation. We're going to start off our group learning program this time with a meditation session. And then the very first talk is going to be part one of a three-part series. We're going to dive into the Eightfold Path over three individual sessions. So the first session is going to be on right view and right intention. We're only going to take time to cover those two steps only. And we're going to spend the whole class period discussing those. Then the second part, which is the subsequent Sunday, we're going to be going into the moral conduct of the Eightfold Path, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And we're only going to talk about those three steps in detail. Then we're going to talk about the third part, which is the third session, which is going to be the mental discipline of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, really diving into that. Because in our previous talks, we would spend one talk talking about the entire Eightfold Path. But now I'm going to break it down in individual components over three sessions so that we can explore and investigate all the various aspects of this path within three different class sessions. And then the fourth class session, we're going to go into the four stages of enlightenment, the 10 fetters, and the seven factors of enlightenment. Normally, that's covered as part of chapter three, but we're going to take just one class and make sure that you very clearly understand each of the four stages of enlightenment, each of the 10 fetters, 
what they are and how to eliminate them from the mind. And we're going to talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. So those are going to be the first four classes, which I've taught this in other classes, but I haven't taught it in this way where we're going to spend a lot of time making sure we fully explore each one of these. So you can see this schedule in the Facebook group or on the registration form where you can register for the group learning program where these first four sessions are going to be different than what we've taught in the past. Once we're done with those, then we're going to pick up on chapter one, two, three, four, five and continue through the group learning program like we've done previously. But we're going to kind of insert these four special classes prior to starting with chapter one. So I'll look forward to seeing you on either Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday. Until then, take care and have a wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.